Let me pray for us. Lord, we love you, and uh, what a beautiful, beautiful reminder. May you help us in your strength comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the depth and the length and the width of your love for us. Uh, Paul prayed that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Um, Lord, that's such a contradiction, but, but we yearn for that, Lord. We really want to know you. Um, Paul would say that um, you're worth giving up everything for count all things as lost for the sake of simply knowing you. And that's why we're gathered, Lord. We want to know you more. We thank you for your grace and how you've revealed yourself to us at this point. Um, but Lord, we want to know you more. So I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would give us spiritual eyes to see, um, as Colossians says, uh, spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may um, know you more and live a life worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of who you are. And that's our heart's desire, Lord, as a church, as we gather to know you, to remember you and to know you. So um, as we move this morning in, into the reading and the study and the preaching of your word, may it be laced with your power. Thank you for your promises that your word never returns void. Thank you that uh, as we meditate on your word, we're promised to be like a tree planted by streams of water that are always bearing fruit, never withering. What would it look like, Lord, if we were a church that leaned into that promise, a church that is fruitful um, through every season because we're rooted and grounded in you? We pray to be that this morning. Um, in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. All right, you may have a seat. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Uh, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. Um, if, if you're new to our church or new to CBC, um, this is going to be a normal occurrence. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible, which means that um, uh, we pick up right where we left off last week. So we finished in Titus chapter 1 last week. We're going to move to Titus chapter 2 this week. Um, so before we begin to read that passage, let me remind us a little bit of, of, about where we were last week. Um, many of you were serving in, in our kids' rooms, and because we only have one service right now, um, you're unable to be here with us, gathered together in this room. Um, so I do want to let you know that um, after hours of learning, we figured out how to put a sermon on the internet. So it's there. Uh, it's on our website at cbcrichmondhill.com. I have not yet learned how to put it as a podcast, so you're not going to find it on iTunes or Spotify. We'll see if that ever happens, um, but maybe we'll get there one day. But it is on the website. So for those that are serving um, and, and missed last week, it's there for you. Um, if you have spouses or people that you know serving today, make sure they, we let them know too so that they can pick up in Titus chapter 1. But let me remind us of where we were in Titus 1. Um, Paul is the author to Titus, Titus being the audience. And we remember last week we, we learned that Titus was a Greek convert of the Apostle Paul. But not only was he a convert, he was a co-worker or a co-laborer. Um, if you remember, we, we saw that Titus, not Timothy, was kind of Paul's strong right arm. Um, in the church in Corinth, when there was a big issue, who did Paul take with him to help settle that matter? Titus. In the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 14 and 15, when there was a lot of conflict occurring over whether the Greeks and the, or the Gentiles could actually be believers, who did he take with him to Jerusalem? Titus. Titus was Paul's strong right arm, and man, the Isle of Crete needed him. Uh, we, we read in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, that um, Paul says, I left you in Crete in order to put what remained into order. There was a reason that Paul left Titus in Crete. It was because Crete was out of order. 
It was chaotic. The phrase that we're going to constantly use through Titus is it was unhealthy. There's a Greek word, you'll see it in your translations through Titus as sound. That word sound is just healthy. The churches in Crete were unhealthy. We saw that they were unhealthy because they had unhealthy leaders. They had some leaders that were preaching some false doctrine, specifically a gospel of works. They professed to know the truth, but the knowledge of the truth did not accord with godliness, right? Their, their beliefs weren't actually flowing into their behaviors. And the way we're going to phrase it today in Titus chapter 2 is that their duties did not reflect their doctrine. Okay? So, Paul left Titus and Crete, put some things into order, to take his car heart down there, to silence and muzzle those unhealthy leaders, and in their place to replace them with healthy leaders or elders. And many of you, last week, you left going, whew, I'm, I'm glad that that's not me. I'm glad that I'm not being considered an elder in the church. I'm glad I'm not being considered a leader in the church because I don't want a magnifying glass on my life like we talked about last week. Especially, you don't want a magnifying glass on the life of your family, right, which we talked about last week. So you walked away thinking, you know, I'm good to go. Hate to mention it, but Titus 2 is not going to let you off the hook. If you think that you're off the hook because you're not an elder or a leader in the church, you're not. Because what we're going to see in Titus chapter 2 is to be a healthy church, it, re- it includes all of us. It requires all of us. Every one of you has a responsibility in order for us to be a healthy church. So often we, we've outsourced gospel witness or, or gospel ministry to paid clergy or professional Christians, right? And Titus 1 would say, hey, it starts there. It starts with healthy leaders, but by no means does it end there. We can't outsource. This is an all play. Being a healthy church requires every single one of us. Um, it's almost like we think of church um, as track and field. I don't know if y'all been watching the world championships. I love watching track and field. I, I ran track and field. It was pretty fun. But track and field is, is largely an individual sport, right? It's an individual event where you potentially run in your individual lanes. And we like to think of the church that way. Well, what does the church mean to me? And, and what, is it, what is it about? It's about usually about me, it's not a, but it's not an individual sport. It's not track and field. I want us to think of the church more like basketball. Okay, hang in there with me. Many of you are going to be shocked and surprised by what I'm about to say, but I love the game of basketball. And, and at some point in my life, I was actually pretty good at it. And you're sitting there and you're scoffing because you're a bunch of sizists, you know, but I'm not saying that I was a center, you know. You don't have to be six foot eight to play the game of basketball, okay. I was a point guard. But in the game of basketball, especially in high school, we were learning, you know, just the the X's and O's of a good zone defense. And the way that our coach was teaching us a good zone defense was by by taking a really, really long rope and tying it around each of our waists. So I was tied to the center, tied to the forward, tied to the two and the three guards. We were all moving in unison. That was the point. So if the ball moved to the left wing, everybody in unison should be moving to the left wing or to their positions in that zone defense. If the ball moved to the right corner, once again, the, the, the goal was everybody moved in unison. That's what we want to think of as a church, is a, is a collective event where we're working together towards a common end. You know, and in that drill, you, when, when someone wasn't moving, you felt that. You knew that. And that's what Titus 2 is really going to show us, is that um, if we want to be a healthy church, it's going to require us moving in unison. It's going to require you having some personal responsibility and understanding that that reflects on the collective church as a whole. So... Titus chapter 2, and let me make a quick announcement. Neil, I did not bring my clicker, so uh, you're, on, you're on board today. Titus chapter 2, verse 1 is where we're going to start. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. 
Let me start, stop there, and, and we're going to read a bigger piece of our passage together in a minute. But let's just start, start right here. Titus, Paul says, if you want to be a healthy church, I need you to teach. Last week is I need you to appoint elders. This week is to teach. Because, as we saw in chapter 1, you know, if you look at verse 10, there were others in the church. They were insubordinate. They were empty talkers. They were upsetting whole families. They were teaching a false gospel, and they needed to be silenced. So the response to that was, hey, Titus, we need you to teach. We need you to teach what is healthy. We need to teach what is right, because those unhealthy teachers are detestable. If you look at verse 16 in chapter 1, disobedient, they're unfit, they're unhealthy, and their teaching is making the church unhealthy. So to combat their teaching, Titus, we need you to teach. But what I want us to, to look at in this first verse is look at what he says to teach. It's kind of shocking. If you think about the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote Romans or Ephesians, someone who goes deep into doctrine and theology and what we are to believe, but that's not where he starts here. He doesn't start by saying, hey, Titus, make sure you teach everything that there is to know about eschatology or anthropology or, hey, when you go to the doctrine of salvation, make sure you really drive home, you know, justification and sanctification. He doesn't start anywhere like that. That's where I would expect him to start. And now we're going to see at the end of this passage, he's going to get there. But where does he start when he says, hey, you want to be a healthy church? You got to teach what accords with sound doctrine. That means what follows sound doctrine, what flows from sound doctrine. Here's the point. Our behaviors come from our beliefs. And Paul's actually going to start with our behaviors. The way I'm going to put it all throughout this, this sermon this morning is that our duties should reflect our um, doctrine. Our duties should reflect our doctrine. James, the, the apostle in Jerusalem, wrote it this way. In James chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. So also faith by itself, doctrine by itself, beliefs by itself, if it does not have works or behaviors or duties, it's what? Dead. But then he goes on to say, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And what's James say? I'll show you my faith by my works. We can't just have one. So why would Paul start here? Why would he say, this is where you need to begin? You need to begin by teaching the right duties. Teach the duties that accord with sound doctrine. It's because of this. We should never confuse being a knowledgeable Christian with being a spiritually healthy one. Let me say it again. We cannot confuse being a knowledgeable Christian with being a healthy one. There are a lot of people that know a lot about the Christian faith but aren't reflecting it in the way that they look. And the point of the gospel is that when you have an encounter with Jesus and you put your faith in Jesus, you're changed. You're different. So our duties should reflect our beliefs or our doctrines. So Titus begins by saying, you got to teach. You have to teach the church how to behave, what those duties are. So if the role of Titus is to teach, what's the role of the church? To learn. To learn. So that's what we're going to look at today, that a healthy church is a learning church. A healthy church is a learning church. And there's going to be two specific things that Paul's going to say we have to learn in order to be a healthy church. So let's read verse 1 together. And our point here is that a healthy church learns its duty. Did you see that coming? I've been talking about it a good bit. A healthy church learns its duty. Verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, 
sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger man to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about you. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So these first 10 verses here, so we're going to camp out. We're going to look at how a healthy church should learn its duty. It's teaching us the duties that all the church should, should abide by in order for us to be healthy. And he does it by breaking up the church into three different demographics. There are three categories of church for us. The first is our older people, our older men and women. That's where he, that's where he starts. So the question then that I hope is popping in your head is what constitutes an older person? Why are you laughing? Phil, don't laugh. Is it gray head? Do, how, how do we know someone's older? Is, is it simply their hair color? Um, is it the ability to get in and out of a recliner without harming oneself? Is it, is it whether or not you have a TikTok account? Probably, you know, it probably has something to do with it. But I don't think that's anything of, of what Paul's really mentioning here. I think it's just, just life stage. Age may have something to play there, but really it's just life stage. And the implication in Scripture, especially when we see in Titus 2 with the older women, they're to train the younger women how to do what? Love their husbands and love their children. There's this implicit understanding that they've done it, that they know what that looks like, that there's a, a life experience there that's worth being passed off to others. So there's a life stage. And I think he starts with, with this older demographic and this older category um, for a reason. It, it's so easy for those of you who are in this stage to think, my duty's done. I've done my work. I'm going to scoop up another timeshare on Tybee, and I'm, and I'm done. But what I really want all of us to see, younger and older, is that a healthy church is, is a consequence of our older members assuming their responsibility standing into their duty. So let's look at those for their older men. Titus 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. We talked a lot about sober-mindedness last week as we looked at the qualification of an elder. In fact, we're going to hear this word temperance, or not given to much wine, two more times just in these first 10 verses. Obviously in Crete, that was a pretty big issue. But our older men are to be clear-headed, Dignified, living a life worthy of honor and respect, self-controlled. Self-control is actually going to be a qualifier for every demographic in the church. Can you ensure that you've curbed your own appetites, your own passions, your desires, your impulses? And then I love that he ends this command to our older men. Be sound in faith. That word sound is healthy. Be healthy. Be strong in your faith and your love and your steadfastness. So, so many of our older men, um, when they look back over their lives... And maybe this is true for you. You look back over your life, you see a lot of great memories. But there's not many I haven't met that don't also have some regrets there. That passion, that, that energy that you had, maybe driving projects a long time ago, providing for that family, that sense of vivacious life seems to be waning. That, that regret's starting to grow. 
feels like a distant memory since you had those that energy. Um, I just want to encourage you from Titus 2, God's not done with you. You're not, you're not worthless or useless just because your job may be over. God's not done with you. So he encourages you to be healthy in your faith, believing that, believing he's not done with you, that if you have breath in your lungs, he's not going to waste your life experience. Be healthy in your faith. Be healthy in your love. It, it, it brings up this memory of, of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in John 13. And there's a scripture that John uses where he says, having loved his own, he loves them till the end. There's this idea of finishing well in your love and in your faith, but it's going to require steadfastness. It's going to require endurance. So please finish well. Older men, our church is full of younger men. This community is full of younger men that need your voice, that need your prayer, that need your example, that need you sharing your life experience in their life. So he's not done with you. Older men, it begins with you. But then he moves on to older women. He even says in verse 3, older men and women, likewise, just as with the older men, likewise, be reverent in behavior. Have a heart that this cultivating nearness to God is what that word means. Not slaves, I mean, not slanderers. I don't know if there's a single thing that can destroy the health of a church like malicious gossip. Calling attention to the faults of others, usually in an attempt to overcome our own insecurities. Don't do that. That's not the duty of a healthy church. Not slaves to much wine. Once again, overindulgent must have been a massive issue on the Isle of Crete. He says, likewise, just, just like the older men, don't get, don't get loose in your living. God's not done with you. God's plan for a healthy church includes you, requires you. Maybe you've reached an age and stage, just like our older men, where maybe your, your home or your career responsibilities is, are starting to lessen. Maybe your role is a little bit less defined. I, I know how many women have you met or that you know personally for, what, 20, 25 years made their world their kids. And now your kids are gone, out of the house, maybe have families of their own. And you start thinking, well, what, what's my role? What's my purpose? Titus 2 would say that grace ripples through the church when you own your duties, older, older women. God's not done with you. So what we see is when older men and older women lean into their duties, learn their duties, it flows into the second demographic, which is the younger women and younger men. Verse 4, so train older women, so train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Let's take a deep breath. Some landmines in here, okay? So I don't have all the time in the world today to unpack all of them, but I'm going to hit on every single one. What's going to help us in interpreting this is understanding what was going on in the first century church on the Isle of Crete, okay? A Greek Gentile community learning to walk in Christ. We cannot impose our own today's modern day understanding into this text without understanding the context. And what we know from the context is around this time, especially the first century B.C. A.D., there was uh, what the Romans would call a new Roman woman. A definition, the new Roman woman. One historian in 35 B.C. wrote that this new Roman woman is glamorous, assertive, living a life of parties and self-gratification and choosing their own lovers. She was a woman of pleasure, 
financial independence and possessed deep societal freedoms to choose her own forms of entertainment. And what was happening in that first century context is they were shirking their God-given homemade responsibilities in an effort to pursue their own. So what they needed was an example. Again, this was a, a Greek place, a, a Roman place. This was not a Judeo-Christian household. There was no traditions that were flowing from Judaism. They needed to learn what does it look like to be a Christian home. And what was, what was Paul's answer to that? Look to, the, look to the older women. That's why we need everyone in the church. So let's start with loving their husbands and their children. It could be contextually a, a day where there's formally arranged marriages. We saw this in India when we lived there for four years, that there were these formally arranged uh, marriages to the point where you may not even met your spouse to the day of your wedding. Going home with a stranger, a lot of that love would be out of obligation, but what would it look like for the sake of the gospel if, if someone was actually learning to learn li- uh, love their husbands as Christ would command them? Self-controlled and pure, again, seeing that thing again, curbing their own lust, working at home. Landmines, let's go here for a second. We need to be careful not to impose, once again, these modern debates about women's roles on our interpretations. It's really unlikely that Paul's probably thinking of a modern-day career woman. Yet, that phrase is better translated, busy at home. Many of your translations may even say that, busy at home. So even though we're not thinking of a modern-day career woman, the apostle without question is ranking a mother's obligation to care for her husband and to her children over her personal benefit and fulfillment. Go straight into another landmine if you're not tired of it. Submissive. What, what conjures up in us when we hear that word submissive? Five times we find the command in the New Testament to younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. That doesn't mean submissive to, to every man, to other husbands. It means submissive to their own husband. So what does that mean? Submit is not to suppress, but to fully express. Okay? We like to say it as equal in value, man and woman, created in the image of God. Do you hear the value in that? Equal in value. But can we just be honest? There's distinctions in roles and features. Men and women are different physically, psychologically, emotionally, emphatically equal in value but distinct in function. When we think of the word submission, think of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equal God, yeah? We would say all parts equal God. But what we find over and over and over again, for the purposes of redemption, the, the, the Son submitting to the Father in order to promote the Father. So it's not suppression. It's fully expressing God's given order in order to promote the gospel within the home. Again, preach a whole message on this. Probably hang around long enough and we'll get there. But what I want us to really remember as we think about these, these landmines is the end of verse 3, where Paul commands the older women to teach what is what? Anybody remember the, the qualifier? Teach what is good. We have to remember that God's purposes and designs are always good. And I'm not here to prescribe for you or for your household what you ought to do regarding staying at home as a mom or to work, but to remind you that regardless of your location or career, we can't lose sight of what is good in being busy at home. Because there's two truths here. You, you could preach this dogmatically. You could say this is a prescribed thing, but there's two truths. You can, without a doubt, young women, pursue a career out of self-interest and neglect the home, Right? But the equal is also true. You can stay at home as a mom and not be kind. 
not be self-controlled, not be submissive, not be pure. And both of those things, and what we see in that scripture, could discredit the gospel of God. So, point is to learn our duties as God has ordered them because they are good. Let's fly to the younger men really quickly. Likewise, verse 6, urge the younger man to be self-controlled, showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, showing integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Titus would have been included here. Paul's command to the young man includes a command to Titus to be self-controlled. More than anything, a lack of self-control would exist in our society today. The ability to say no, to curb our own passions. What Eve lacked when she chose that, she saw something that was good and went for it. And he says to the younger man, be an example in your doctrines, in your duties. It's Paul's similar encouragement that we see in Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, when Paul tells Timothy to be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So, we have two demographics that we've looked at so far. Remember, this is an all play. This is a zone defense. We need everybody. We need the older men and women. We need the younger men and women. And then he includes what I would say is the modern day workforce. Servants, slaves, workforce. Verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, for us, the, the concept of slavery or servitude, you know, immediately populates our minds with the grotesque and, and horrible history of our past, right? But again, in context, it would have included that. In the Roman world, there were slaves as bad as America's history. But more popular than that was this idea of indentured servitude, putting yourselves at the household of another in order to collect your wages, so the most equal comparison that we would have is some kind of a modern-day workforce. And, and I say most equal. No way do we have the same. But as it, requires, as it applies to us and how we do apply this, this passage, we need to view it through the lens of workforce. And, and Paul says, workers, be submissive. Be well-pleasing. Work hard. Work hard as to the Lord, not as unto man, so that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Once again, so that your duties reflect what we believe. So we have three categories of people that clearly show that the health of the church is dependent upon the health of all of us. Every one of us. Nobody is excluded. But before we move to, to verse 11, I want to bring our attention back to one little word in the Greek in these first 10 verses. It's so important. It's the Greek word hina. It means so that. It means for or because. It's a purpose statement. It's saying that we should learn these duties for a reason, so that the word of God may not be reviled, so that our opponents have nothing evil to say, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God. This is what a healthy body does. They perform their duties with concern for the reputation of God and for his church. We learn those duties that accord with, with sound doctrine. So let's look back at in our text today and move into verse 11. I can almost see Paul in my imagination, you know, sitting at his desk. He's all frustrated because he keeps getting these reports about how the churches in Crete are looking more like the world, you know, than the, than the person of Christ. 
and he's writing, no, 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 you should be learning this duty. You should be doing this. You should be doing this. You should be doing this. And he gets more and more exasperated the longer he gets in those first 10 verses because he knows and he preached over and over and over again that you can't do this in your own strength, that we can't adorn these duties in our own self-will or willpower. We need something else. We need, we need doctrine. We need a right belief that will propel our right behavior. In our haste to learn our duties, we, we can't divorce those from our doctrine. It matters. It matters what we believe. So let's look at verse 11 and learn about the doctrine that we should be learning of a healthy church. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's learning doctrine that propels our duties. And specifically, it's learning the doctrine of grace. Learning the doctrine of grace. For the grace of God has appeared. That Greek word appeared means epiphany. It showed up, and how did the grace of God appear? In a manger, through the womb of a virgin, in a way that would make no sense to the world. Grace came and humbled itself to reveal to us the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The grace of God has appeared. This is for free. We could preach a whole other message on this, but it's going to appear again. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's coming back. So in between these graces, in between his appearing as a baby and his appearing as the king, we're to live within these duties. And we do those duties propelled by the right doctrine, the doctrine of grace. Here's a, a danger for us as we, as we consider the doctrine of grace. If we don't learn the doctrine of grace appropriately, there, there's one or two evils we'll fall suspect to. Okay? The first is legalism. If we had just the first 10 verses, right, do this, do this, do this, do this. If you just had the first 10 verses apart from the doctrine of grace, you'll have legalism. And we talked a little bit about legalism last week, but it's just a dependence upon works as a means to secure your place in God's eyes. It's a list of rules or, or, or duties that if I do them correctly, maybe God will love me. Maybe he'll accept me. It's leaning into my own strength. That's legalism. Listen to this pretty extended quote by Richard Foster. He wrote a, a classic called Celebration of Discipline. And he talks about legalism like this. He says, nothing will choke the heart and soul out of walking with God like legalism. Do you hear that? Nothing will choke the heart and the soul like, out of walking with God like legalism. Walking with God is so enjoyable. But when we dumb it down to just a bunch of list of do's and don'ts, it becomes burdensome. It, 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 it sucks the heart and the soul out of it. He goes into this quote and says, Consider the story of Hans the tailor. Because of his reputation, an influential, physically healthy entrepreneur visiting the city ordered a tailor-made suit from Hans. But when he came to pick up his suit, the customer found that one sleeve twisted that way and the other this way. One shoulder bulged out and the other caved in. He pulled and managed to make his body fit. As he returned home on the bus, another passenger noticed his odd appearance and asked if Hans the tailor made his suit. Receiving an affirmative reply, the man remarked, that's amazing. 
I knew that Hans was a good tailor, but I had no idea he could make a suit fit so perfectly with someone as deformed as you. Richard Foster goes on to say, that's just what we do in the church. We get some idea of what the Christian faith should look like, and then we push and we shove people into the most grotesque configurations until they fit it wonderfully. That's death. It's a wooden legalism. It will destroy the soul. Many of you grew up in, in that form of religion. Many of you may still be in bondage to that form of religion. I know that that was my story. The way that I grew up, do not drink, don't dance, don't cuss. Don't you dare listen to Leonard Skinner. And I tell you that by the eighth grade, this is a true story, by the eighth grade, I thought, what's the point? I can't, I can't keep up with all these things. I mean, and everybody loves Leonard Skinner. It felt impossible. It, it choked my heart out. And I, why would I walk with God in this list of rules and do's and don'ts? Legalism is just the first ten verses apart from grace. That's why we have to properly learn the doctrine of grace in order to avoid legalism. That's the remedy. If you have a faith that is driven by a list of what you can or can't do, the remedy for you is understanding that the grace of God appeared in the person of Christ. But there's a, another severe danger if we don't properly learn grace. If we don't really know what it means to follow grace, the opposite could also be true. We could fall, we could fall victim to licentiousness. I practiced that word like 80 times this week. <laughs> licentiousness. It, it's just the license to sin. What so happens is, is we, we go, hey, God's grace has appeared. I don't, I don't have to worry about how I behave anymore. I can live however I want. God's grace covers me. It's what the church in Rome was struggling with when Paul wrote Rome. In chapter 6, he says this. Neil, thank you. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The church in Rome was saying, listen, just keep sinning. Sin more and sin more because God's grace is so good and it's so big. It'll cover us. So the more we sin, the more attention we actually bring to God's grace. Pretty, pretty sound logic, right? No, that's a, that's a faulty understanding of God's grace. God's grace is not licentiousness. We can't run up against legalism and get so frustrated with the rules and go, they don't matter anymore. I want to live however I want. We can't let our hatred for legalism lead us to a bondage of sin in the form of licentiousness. True grace promotes neither. Because in verse 12, look what Paul says. True grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It trains us to say no. That there's some things in this world that are ungodly passions that we have to say no to as a follower of Christ. True grace really makes us reflect on our lives and ask some pretty honest questions. Is, is what I'm doing really reflect the conviction that Christ died for my sins? Have I lost the ability to say no, or am I controlled by my worldly passions? Do my behaviors, my entertainments that I choose, do they align with that, the passions of this world or, or godliness, right? That's what true grace does. It trains us. Francis Schaeffer once wrote that we are surrounded by a world that says no to nothing, Right? We're surrounded by a world that says no to nothing. We have a society that holds back from nothing. And the truth is, we like that. Because in our sinful disposition, we hate denying ourselves. We don't want to deny ourselves. I don't want to say no. It hurts sometimes to say no. But learning the true doctrine of grace will train us to say no. 
it'll, it'll make us run from legalism, and it'll make us run away from licentiousness. A healthy church is, Titus 1, led by healthy leaders, but it's going to include all of us. It's going to require all of us. We looked at those three demographics, our older, our younger, and our workforce. We have to learn and grow in our duties in order to be a healthy church. We have to learn and grow in our doctrine of grace that promotes those healthy duties, right? Let me, let me summarize it and conclude it for us like this. I, I need to be really clear. If anybody tells you that the rules that you follow earn your acceptance with God, that is legalistic trash. But if anyone says it doesn't matter to God or, or to his church how you behave, that's unbiblical, selfish licentiousness, and we have to run from both of those things. We need the doctrine of grace. And let me remind you in verse 14 of what that grace is. It appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And he gave himself for us to redeem us, to purchase for us our salvation. And to cleanse us from all these ungodly duties. And to cleanse us from this lawlessness, this sin. So that we may be his possession. To be his. His church. Under his name so that we may be zealous for good works, right? It's that doctrine of grace that propels those works or those duties. So let me, let me pray for us. I'm going to ask our team to come back up, and uh, they're going to lead us in a time of song. And, um, and then we're actually going to partake in communion today, too. So um, I'll pray for us now, and then I'll come back up here in a minute and lead us through that time of communion. Father, we love you, and um, we're so very thankful for the doctrine of grace. Thank you that you appeared that we did nothing to earn that, we did nothing to deserve that. It's just your love. You wanted relationship with your creation. You wanted what was broken to be mended and restored, and you took matters into your own hands. We can't do that. We don't have the power to do that. So, Lord, free us from trying. Lord, if we struggle, anybody here struggles with legalism and, and being in bondage to this list of do's and don'ts, Lord, I pray that you'd set them free by realizing the joy that is in you and walking with you and being in relationship with you. And Lord, if there's any of us that are, are struggling with licentiousness, just feeling like, well, God's grace, I'm, it's covered me, I'm, I'm good, I'm saved. Lord, I pray that you would convict where appropriate, that we would recognize that how we do our duties matters to you. Lord, help us to be a healthy church that holds these things in balance, our duties and our doctrine. And ultimately, may it, may it resemble your grace. May we adorn the doctrine of the gospel well as CBC Richmond Hills. We pray that in your name. Amen.